I'm going to give some scenarios, and I want you to think about what you would say in the situation. Uh, imagine you have a friend, and she's going to go to a job interview. But before she goes to the job interview, she tells you, like, I'm, I'm really nervous and anxious. I, I don't know what to say or to act. I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I should say. Here's the first question. Well, what, what advice would you give her going into that job interview? Here's a second scenario. Imagine this one. Your son is going to go to a school, a new school for the very first time. And he too is very nervous about meeting people. He's nervous, what will they think about them? Will they like them? And he comes to you and he says, Mom, Dad, I'm just, I'm, I'm so anxious at, at meeting these new people. W what should I do? What advice would you give him? Here's, here's the last one. You just moved into a new home and you're invited to a neighborhood party. And as you're getting ready to go to this party, you, you notice that your spouse is a little anxious about meeting some new people and nervous. What would you say to him or her? So, so now feel free to ask me, what advice would you give those people? Just be yourself? Well, let's pray, okay. That's the pious answer. Good job, Donna. Excellent. I, I think I think Greg hit, hit the nail on the head. Is it not true that the most common advice people give or or say in those moments is just is just be yourself, right? Amen. Have you ever given that advice before? Has, has someone ever given it to you? When we go into new situations where we're wanting to meet someone and we're nervous, often the, the most common sentiment is, "Hey, man." Just be yourself. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, uh, but such advice is not a novel idea. In fact, I would submit to you that if someone from another planet came to Earth and observed us humanity for about a month, I think he would conclude that the people of this Earth, they have a problem with just being themselves. Because, look, is this not the council that is promoted everywhere you go, be it in TV shows, movies, or music, just be yourself. And not just, I would argue, and not just when meeting people for the first time. No, I would argue that self-actualization is the counsel that our culture esteems above all others. And, and again, we see it everywhere, do we not? From the Disney song, Let It Go, to the Miley Cyrus song, Flowers, being yourself, being true to yourself, loving yourself, is the most important virtue you can have. Indeed, as you listen a little closer... The counselor's life is all about the pursuit of self. I mean, how many people have you heard say, you know what, I, I just need to spend, some, spend a year away just to go find myself. 
Or you know what, it wasn't until I took some time and I found myself that then I really started living. Just be yourself when it comes to your relationships. Just be yourself when it comes to your sexuality. Just be yourself and let no one tell you differently. In fact, to do otherwise is the greatest betrayal and sin you can commit. I want to suggest this notion is ubiquitous in our culture. It's everywhere. Which is precisely why we need our passage this morning. Friend, I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but this type of thinking, this type of thinking to just be yourself, it is antithetical to biblical Christianity. You know why? Because Christianity is not about self-actualization, but it's about conformity to Christ. Indeed, if we're taking our cues from Jesus, the Christian life is not self-actualization, it's self-crucifixion. It's denying and dying to self. I mean, does not Jesus make this abundantly clear in the Gospels? Consider what he says in Luke 9. And he said to all, which would have been everybody in his hearing, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Tell me, what is a cross? It's an instrument of torture and death. Do you see? Christianity is not self-actualization. It's self-crucifixion. We die to self and follow Christ. This morning, we're going to resume our study of Ephesians, and we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And as we're about to see, the Apostle Paul, he echoes what Jesus teaches. For you know what Paul's main point is in this passage, which is really another turning point in the book of Ephesians? We could summarize in this way, it's simply this. Don't be yourself. Imitate God. Don't be yourself. Don't be true to yourself. Don't be the best version of you. No, Christian, you are called to imitate God. As several commentators have correctly pointed out, in other letters of Paul, Paul holds himself up as an example and says, you know what, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul also tells congregations, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, to imitate other congregations. Yet only here in Ephesians, this is the only place in the entire Bible where we are told to imitate God. As God's children, 
we are to imitate, mimic, mirror, reflect, display the sameness, qualities and attributes as our Heavenly Father. Don't be yourself. Imitate God. Now, now please hear me. And when I say please hear me, I mean it. Because I can see the wheel spinning in your eyes. Has God made each one of us unique and different? Yes. We all have different temperaments, gifts, interests, talents. And for that, we should be thankful. Amen? We're not all vanilla. Okay? There's differences amongst us. Yet, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, the Bible is clear. We are to, as Christians, we are to strive to have every aspect of our life be in conformity to Christ. Whatever your disposition might be, as a Christian, it must be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that means on the street level, imitating God. Don't be yourself. Imitate God. So here's the million-dollar question. How are we to imitate God? I mean, what does that even look like? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Paul clearly marks out three ways where to be imitators of God. And this is going to be our outline for the next couple of weeks. Each we're going to take one of these aspects. So this morning we're just going to look at the first way that we're to imitate God. So if you haven't already, please turn within your Bibles to Ephesians 5. That's page 978 in that paperback Bible. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start reading back in verse 31 of chapter 4 and read through chapter 5, verse 2. Some, uh, some commentators uh, think that chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 uh, coincides and goes better with the end of chapter 4. Others think it's, it's a new section. He's introducing a new idea or a new emphasis. That's, that's where I tend to, under, to understand this passage. But to just get the, the context, I'm going to read back in verse 31 of chapter 4. So, so Paul's been talking about how we're to change our behavior for biblical reasons, how our, the input of God's blessings should, should, or rather the output of our conduct should match the input of God's blessings. And he says this in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is what we focused on last week. We're to replace bitterness with forgiveness. And now here's where we're going to camp out this morning, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Hear these words. Therefore, Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Uh, many moons ago, when I was back in seminary, I, I got a phone call from one of our, our dearest friends that their three-year-old daughter had to be taken to the emergency room to get stitches in her chin. And when my friend called me up, I asked him, I said, well, you know, tell me, you know, what happened? Why, did, why does she need these stitches? And my friend said, well, my, my daughter had taken a liking to following me around the house and imitating everything that I would do. Well, today, after I left to go to class, my wife found my daughter in the bathroom with my razor in her hand. And she began shaving, and she, she cut up her chin. Thankfully, to your relief, though, everybody, the cuts weren't that bad, and she has no scars. In fact, to tell you just how old I am, this young woman is now like a junior in college. So, uh, 60 was not far off. Okay. <laughs> now, was it good and sweet that my friend's daughter wanted to imitate her father? Yes. But you know what? There are some things she shouldn't imitate, like shaving her face, right? There are some things she shouldn't imitate. And you know what? The same is true with us and God. Notice, Paul doesn't leave the door wide open for us to guess how we're to imitate God, does he? No, he quickly instructs us to walk in love. And this is the first way we are to imitate God. You want to imitate God? He doesn't leave it open. He says, walk in love. As theologians have correctly pointed out, love is one of God's communicable attributes. That is, love is one of the attributes of God that we are called to imitate as his image bearers. Some of the other communicable attributes of God would be his mercy, his, his graciousness, his faithfulness, his holiness, patience and forgiveness. But then there are certain traits that are only true of God alone. For example, only God is infinite. Only God is incomprehensible, self-existent, eternal, immutable, only God is omnipresent. Only God is omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign. These are what theologians call his incommunicable attributes. We are not called to imitate him in these ways. Indeed, when we strive to become like God in any of his incommunicable attributes, you know what we are doing? We are setting ourselves up as his rival. And you know what? Sadly, 
that is precisely what we can often do. For example, instead of trusting in the omniscience of God, that he knows all things, we do not desire omniscience for ourselves, don't we? We want to know everything, especially those things that God has chosen not to reveal about our circumstances, or others, other, we come into circumstances, into situations, and we believe and we speak and we act as though we do know all things. Or rather than revere God's omnipotence, his power and his control, we seek omnipotence in our own spheres of influence, don't we? That is, we want complete control. We want everything to fall in line with our decrees. Indeed, rather than rest in the immobility, immobility of God, we point to our own calcified sin patterns and declare ourselves unchanging and unchangeable, right? Well, look, that's just the way I am. You know, I'm just a worrier. Or I just tend to get angry. Or I'm just not very patient. I'm unchanging. You see, when we strive to become like God in his incommunicable traits, we're like my friend's daughter holding a razor to our lips. We not only set ourselves as a rival against God, but when we do this, we also harm ourselves and others. And I just want to create a little space here and ask, Christian, is this true of you? Take a moment and do an inventory of your relationships. Do you find yourself thirsting and craving to imitate God's incommunicable attributes? Let me put it down on a street level. Are you controlling? Are you discontent if you don't know everything? Indeed, how often do you treat others like you are omniscient, you know all things, or that you are, uh, um, uh, I'll just say it, all-powerful? <laughs> I mean, think for a moment how, how destructive this would be in relationships if we try and crave after these traits of God that are reserved only for him. You see, Christian, we are called to emulate different attributes, those appropriate, listen, for limited beings. And in the text I just read, Paul calls us to imitate one of God's communicable traits, and that is love. Walk in love, Paul writes. And I want to suggest that we're to walk in love in two ways as based on the language and grammar of these two verses. And the first is this. We're to walk in love as, notice, beloved children of God. Look at what he says there in verse 1. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Don't be yourself. Imitate God. Imitate God by walking in love and we do that as beloved children children. Father William Wasson was a Catholic priest in a small town just south of Mexico City, Mexico, in the 1950s. The city was very, very poor, and it was filled with orphans. 
Well, one day, two kids were caught stealing from the church's poor box. They were then arrested and put in jail. Well, Lawson went to the jail to see the children, and upon seeing these kids in the prison cell, Lawson asked, hey, do you think I could take care of the kids in my own home? And the police officer said, sure. So Lawson paid their bail and took them home. Well, two days later, the police called Lawson and said, hey, we caught two more kids, two more orphans stealing. We have them here in the jail. To which Lawson replied, please send them over to me, which they did. Well, in less than a month, Lawson had 17 kids living in his home, all of which came to him via the jail. So he moved to a bigger home to care for all these orphans. But that's not all he did. Shortly thereafter, he legally adopted each one of these 17 kids. And get a load of this. Over the course of his life, Wasson adopted about 6,000 children. He also founded the orphan ministry, Our Little Brothers and Sisters in Mexico. And this is what I want you to know. Wasson's goal was never simply to free those kids from jail, though noble and as oppressive as that was. He just didn't simply free them from their jail sentence. No, his end goal was to make those children his sons and daughters. Hear me, adoption, not redemption, was Wasson's goal. And Christian, so it is with God in us. Christian, God's goal in saving you was never simply to free you from the penalty of sin, which he has done, nor was it simply to forgive you of your sins so you could be fit for heaven, which he has done. No, God's ultimate purpose, what the, what the scriptures make clear, is that God's ultimate purpose was adoption, not simply redemption. C consider what Paul writes in Galatians 4. Listen to this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law. Why? So that. This so that is important. All what Christ has done, all the fullness of time, sending forth Christ, redeeming those who are under law, was for this purpose, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Everything God had done through Jesus Christ is so that, Christian, you and I might be his sons and daughters. J.I. Packer helps us see the significance of what Paul is saying. Packer writes this. He says, we all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else. And then he says this, but contrast this now with adoption. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of this relationship. And then this, write this down. 
To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for God the Father is greater. Christian, this is you. You are loved for and cared for by God the Father. You are his adopted child. And what Ephesians 1 makes clear is that to the praise of his grace, God determined this before the foundation of the world. What does Paul write in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5? He says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 is linked with Ephesians 5, 1. He said, because what does he say in chapter 1? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's how we became God's sons. And now Paul says, as beloved sons and daughters, walk in love. Now, why is this important? It's important for a variety of reasons, not the least being this, Christian. Please hear me. As beloved children, we have to get this right. We walk in love not to earn salvation, but because we have it. Amen? We don't imitate God to be his children. We imitate God because we are his children solely because of his divine will. Amen? So as we talk about loving one another and walking in love, we do so as those who have been loved. Praise him. But then second, we are to walk in love as Christ loved you. And this is what he develops there in verse 2. And he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, to understand the Father's love more clearly, we need to look at Jesus you know why? Because Jesus is the ultimate imitator of the Father. I mean, this, this is Jesus' own testimony. Listen to what he says in John 5. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So we want to imitate God and walk in love. We want to know what that looks like. We look at Jesus. Now, I want to suggest that Paul's choice of words in Ephesians 5.2 highlights three ways in which Christ loved us and how we in turn must love others. Notice first, Christ's love was voluntary. He he gave himself up. Jesus even said as much in John 10, doesn't he? Remember what he says? I'm going to put it up here on the screen, John 10, 18. What does Jesus say? Speaking of his life, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Christian, Jesus willingly loved you by dying on the cross 
in your place. Jesus wasn't coerced. He wasn't manipulated. He wasn't threatened. He loved you, Christian, by going to the cross, and he did so willingly. Do you have to be coerced to love others? Do you voluntarily choose to love others? Or are you reluctant to love your spouse, children, friends, or neighbors? Walk in love. Love as Christ loved us. Christ's love, as is demonstrated in scriptures, was voluntary. He willingly did that. So are we. But then second, Christ's love was costly. It was voluntary. It was costly. Notice, he gave up his life. <laughs> Indeed, he gave up his life for people who were undeserving of his love. Is, I mean, has this not been one of Paul's main points he's been hammering home in the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 2? We weren't deserving of his love. We were without hope. We were far from God. We were enemies of, of him, children of wrath. We were not deserving of his love. Yet he chose to love us at the expense of his life. Right? We even sang it this morning. He left the comforts of heaven. I mean, just consider this, Christian. You hopeless enemy of God, rebel, wanting nothing to do with God, hellbound. Fast track to hell. What did Jesus do? He left the comforts of heaven to suffer pain, discomfort, and death for you, Christian. To be imitators of God and to walk in love is to do the same. Love requires, I would suggest, sacrifice. This is why elsewhere in Scripture, when the Bible calls us to love like Christ, it calls us to lay down our lives. To, to lay down your life for someone in love is more than just laying down your life physically. To lay down your life means placing other people's wants and desires above your own. So I'll give you an example. See if this has ever happened to you. Long day. You're tired. All you can be thinking about is your pillow. And it's kind of cold outside. It's going to be warm in the sheets. You're exhausted, and you lay down your pillow. You hit the pillow, and your wife, who's been in bed for 20 minutes, says, oh, can you go get me a glass of water? To lay down your life to love is to, I want this, but I'm going to sacrifice the comfort of what I want to love my spouse. Or kids. To lay down your life in love means when it's your turn to finally get on the family computer, but your brother and sister needs to use it for an urgent school project, you joyfully let them use the family computer instead of arguing and fighting for it. 
To lay down one's life means to sacrifice our desires for the betterment of others. Now, I know what you're thinking, or maybe you might be thinking, but Aaron, that's so inconvenient. Precisely. That's the point. That's what a sacrifice is. That's what makes it costly. Brothers and sisters, it's precisely at that inconvenient moment when you sacrifice your time, your schedule, your resources, your sleep, your leisure, your own wants and wishes so as to love others that you have in that moment crossed over to biblical love. A love that is not looking for anything in return, but a love that is motivated because you've gotten everything in Christ. So, Christ's love was voluntary, costly, and it's worshipful. Third notice, that Christ gave himself up for us, but it was an offering to God. Indeed, it was a fragrant offering to God. Here, here is a, in another way of the Bible saying that the sacrifice of Christ, his death on the cross, was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. Amen? Jesus was doing this for the pleasure of the Father. And I want, to te- I want to encourage us, if we're going to love like Christ, so it needs to be with us. We are to love others out of a love for God. We have to make it our aim to please Him. We, if, if our motive for loving others is because they are lovely, we won't do it. Because you know what? You're going to be called to love people who aren't lovely, just as Christ loved us when we weren't lovely. We are to do so with the aim to please Christ. So let me go back to the question I started with. What do you say to your child when he or she is nervous about meeting new people at school? Mom and Dad, I'm going to this event. I'm nervous. What should you say to them? I would suggest, based on the authority of this text, don't say to them, just be yourself. And say to them, you know what? Don't be yourself. Imitate God. When you walk into that school, you imitate God and you love others as Christ loved you. You have a higher calling, Christian. This is what you're called to do. You want to know what to be? You imitate God. Regardless of what others say or treat you, you walk in love. Now to close, and I, and I mean that, I'm not lying to you, Okay. I, I want us to, to be honest with ourselves and to consider for a moment that this is really hard to do. Truthfully, I don't think any of us wake up in the morning wanting to love sacrificially like Christ loved us. At least I know I don't at times. And I began to wonder, why is this? Why is our disposition not to run to this type of sacrificial love that we see exemplified with Christ. And I'm convinced the reason is this. It's because in the moment, friend, we fear that we're going to lose something we value. 
We, we fail to love like Christ because in the moment we fear we're going to lose something we value. I'm afraid that loving you sacrificially means I'm going to lose something dear to me, like my time or my money or my rights. I'm afraid that if I love you in this way, I'm going to be taken advantage of, and you know what? You're going to expect more of me next time. I think what keeps us from obeying this command is the fear of losing what we really treasure. And this, friend, is why we need Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. For what has Paul brilliantly described in those three chapters? You know what he's brilliantly described? All the riches and all the blessings we have in Christ. Please hear me. Riches and blessings in Christ that cannot be taken away from us. Look, in my act of loving you, you might take away my time, my money, my resources. But you cannot take away my adoption in Christ. Me loving you might mean I might lose or suffer some kind of loss, but you can never take away the glorious inheritance I have waiting for me. You cannot take away my seal for redemption that I have in the Spirit, nor can you take away the immeasurable riches of God's grace that he will shower upon me for the ages to come. Amen? You see, faith, what self-sacrifice brings to the forefront is this. This question, what do I treasure most? What do I value most? Is it the fleeting things of this world or is it the blessings and the riches and the most significant realities Paul has expressed in Ephesians 1 through 3 that are now ours through Jesus Christ? Blessings and riches and wealth that cannot be taken away from us. When our hearts are tuned to see those as the most important things. So I lost an afternoon helping you out at your house. So I lost some money paying for your dinner. So I was inconvenienced and I lost sleep. I may have lost those things, but I have Christ and all that he has blessed me with in the heavenlies. Faith, don't be yourself. Imitate God. What if you loved your spouse like this? What if you go into your marriage thinking, I'm going to imitate God, I'm going to walk in love. I'm going to love my, my siblings, I'm going to walk in love. I'm going to walk into my job, I'm going to walk into my neighborhood. I'm going to imitate God. What if we made that our aim? It would be a pleasing aroma to God. That's what would happen. And may that be true of us. Let's pray.